Again, everybody, and welcome back to What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy. We talk about things that are important to the United States Border Patrol, its men and women, and those we serve. Now, today we have with us retired Assistant Chief Cliff Gill. Now, I'm going to tell you I'm a little excited to have this conversation today because Mr. Gill is our very first designated Border Patrol historian. And the things that are contained in this gentleman's mind, probably most people have never even known or even thought about it. He's actually been to the National Archives, has poured through document after document, and researched and found out so much of the information and history that led up to where we are today as an agency. Cliff, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for the privilege of having me here. So let me, let me tell everybody a little bit about you and how you got to this point. Now, you started off as a young man in the United States Navy, which rings true to me. My oldest son is, is in the Navy as well. And you were a quartermaster from 1987 to 1991. Correct. Now, what is that that has to do with more navigation, you were saying? That's right. So in the, uh, in the Army, that would be, in, in the Marine Corps, I believe, that would be your supply guys. Uh, but in the Navy, a quartermaster is in the navigation field. Okay, fair enough. And now you hail from Cincinnati, Ohio. I do. How in the world did you find the United States Border Patrol? So uh, after I got out of the Navy... Uh, I knew I wanted to go into a career of law enforcement. Originally, I wanted to be a regular police officer, or sheriff's deputy, and I was concentrated to that. I actually sent myself through the Ohio Peace Officer Academy in 97, and then it turned out that I was going to have to relocate to San Diego, California. And I thought, well, I was stationed in San Diego uh, in the Navy, and I knew there was some Border Patrol out there, and they had a website that I could apply to the Border Patrol. There you go. So I started my application process in 1997, trying to get a job in San Diego when I got there in law enforcement. Uh, and of course that didn't work out too well for you in terms of San Diego. We'll talk about that in a second. So you, you EOD'd, entered onto duty with the United mm-hmm. States Border Patrol in May 18th of 1998, almost the uh, birthday of the Border Patrol. Almost. And you actually started in Laredo. Yes. Almost San Diego. Almost. Almost. So no qualms about uh, accepting the offer, you uh, and you never look back. So I moved cross-country from Cincinnati to San Diego. I'd been in San Diego for three weeks, and I got a FedEx package from the, from the United States Border Patrol saying I had 11 days to report to Laredo, Texas. I said Laredo because <laughs> I couldn't say Laredo right. I had two immediate thoughts, and the first thought is, Texas, they're going to give me a horse. And then Laredo, which I'd never heard of, I was... I hope they have paved streets. Of course, I didn't get a horse. I didn't have a horse patrol there at the time. And uh, Laredo is a nice little metropolis. So It's surprising, isn't it? As you know, yeah. I, I lived there myself for a few years, and it, it's a great town, a great community. But when you hear all the stories on TV and movies, you have an entirely different perception in mind than oh, yeah. when you get there. But you come to find out that they're some of the best places to live. So, an incredible culture. I, I think back and uh, with very fond memories of the food and, and again, the culture. Uh, I, I would say sometimes a, a lot more Mexican culture than, than that of the United States. And I think of using mariachi bands to propose, just really 
really sweet, really nice. So class 377, and you've, right. you've, you've watched these podcasts before, so you know what I'm going to ask. That's right. What is it? So 377, law and order is our goal. Proud to be Border Patrol. You know, if you wouldn't have known that, you were probably the only person I would not forgive being a historian. I wasn't going to forget that at all. <laughs> Good. So you still stay in touch with any of your classmates? So, no, actually I don't, uh, but their names come up in conversation. One that just came up is a retired assistant chief patrol agent from here, Billy Stillman. Okay. Also a former uh, member of the old guard in the Army, a tomb guard, uh, and his name came up in conversation. One of the guys here in staff is going to meet him, I think, uh, day after tomorrow or so. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you're, you're kind of alluding to something else I want to talk about as a retiree a little bit later. But mm-hmm. So you, you decided to retire after well, 24 years of service? It was 22 and a half. Okay. But before you did that, so you start off at Laredo South, the mm-hmm. Laredo South Station, and you promoted to supervisory board patrol agent at the Laredo North Station, yes. which boasts the largest and busiest checkpoint down the southwest border, which is Charlie 29 today. But when you were there, was Charlie Char- 15. Charlie 15, that's which, right. Which means it migrated north. 14 miles, if my mm-hmm. Oklahoma math is correct, That's right. and where it is today. So you obviously had some really good experience as a supervisor there. It was awesome. Awesome yeah. experience. And then comes headquarters, Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. So you go to be an operations officer. You were uh, in charge of the asset forfeiture program, the fleet management program, uh, Interpol, and Interpol in Washington. Uh, you worked with policy and doctrine. And then ultimately into the awards and recognitions program and then the history program, which mm-hmm. gained you the uh, the notoriety for being the Border Patrol's historian. That's right. And then you retired out of, uh, out of headquarters, Washington, right. D.C. as an assistant chief. That's right. So obviously a very storied and, and interesting career, but there's a couple of them I really want to pay attention to that right. I think everybody else wants to hear about as well. So you were designated in 2018 by Chief Carla Provost as the Border Patrol's first historian. That's right. Now, but, I want to throw some kudos to a couple of other retirees out there. Okay. So there's Riley Handbeck, who retired from the academy, and he did uh, great work in collecting uh, Border Patrol history. And then Joe Bonco, who of retired course. as an associate chief out of headquarters, did a fantastic job. He has a couple of books out there that mm-hmm. somebody may want to look up. The way I got to be a historian was a little bit different. Um, the way that I got into the history is when I was in doctrine, we were going to create the capstone doctrine piece for... Uh, the Border Patrol doctrine. And part of that was going to say, this is the Border Patrol, this is where we came from, this is where we're going, these are our values. And part of that would be a big history piece. So I started collecting history. I started having questions. How do we know this is right? How is it that we have one sector saying that we're first and the other sector saying they're first? How did this disconnect occur? And I just started looking through different things and then I thought, I know where the answer might be. We're in the Reagan building, four blocks down the street is the National Archives. I bet the answers are there. So I sold my leadership, my supervisors, on letting me go there. So I had to fumble through, figure out how to do the research, how to get access to the documents, how to collect them, and that's how I got on the history. So let me just kind of bring that full circle. This was not something that you were tasked with doing. This was something that you decided you wanted to do. You had a passion for it. And you took it upon yourself to learn and figure out how to go about doing the research That's right. and actually getting the real history That's of our right. organization, of our family. That's right. Now, that sounds so easy when I say it. Tell the, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about what that entails. So the very first thing you do, to, you have to get access there. And it's pretty easy to get a researcher's card. You take a little test and do that. 
What is difficult is even knowing how to get to the information. So all the information in the National Archives are kept in these boxes about six to eight inches wide. And in the boxes are any number of files and in each file is any number of papers. So when you want to find a specific paper, you have to find generally a scholarly source or an index card that says, hey, this document is in this file. You go to the National Archives and you order that file and what they do is they deliver you the box that has the file. Now this may be inaccurate but I think it's pretty accurate that only about one percent of the documents that are in those boxes are actually on a source outside of that such as an index card or a scholarly source. So when I would get the boxes instead of finding the file that contained the paper that I wanted I would get take out the very first file and go page by page by page collecting documents of interest and I would go through the entire box not just for that one document and I've gone through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of documents uh, and many of these are the onion skin paper so very thin and, and fragile so if I, if I understand you right you you had to find a way in so you had to find something in the archives that was mentioned in a scholarly article, scholarly article so that you could get that box and then look through that box to see what you could find. That's right. So you can't go there unless I would call them targets. So what's my target of this research? And I would usually go there with about 10 targets. So I would want to get 10 boxes and I would generally never be able to make it through all 10 boxes, so usually seven or eight tops. And that was for a full not eight to, to nine hour uh, day of searching. And um, and that's it. You had to find those targets. So you can't just show up at the National Archives and say, bring me the Declaration of Independence. You have to no. have a scholarly source that says that document is in this box. That's right. And then you have the option of just getting that document out of the box, or you could take advantage of everything else is in that box and look through it and see what else is of interest. So that's right. So the thing is, is so many documents aren't listed on an index card or a scholarly source. Uh, you have to go through everything so that you would find that gem that wasn't listed anywhere else. That's in incredible. And when I when I think of the National Archives, I've never been in this back area that you're talking about. But in my mind, I, I see something like Raiders of the Lost Ark where they have all <laughs> these crates. What does it look like? So there's there's two main parts that a researcher will go through. So there's two entrances to the National Archives. There's there's one on Pennsylvania that is the um, that is the researcher's entrance, and it's a pretty nondescript door. It's not like a secret entrance or anything like that. And then on the other side is where the tourist would go to get to see the Declaration sure. and Constitution. So you go in there, and the first thing you do is is go into a, a lower office area. And by the way, your, your card, you're being scanned everywhere you go. Um, and you would fill out your documents. You call them pool slips. And you would say, these are the boxes I want. And for each box, you do a pool slip. So I would go in there with about 10 pool slips. Then you have to wait about 45 minutes to an hour. They'll deliver your box, and it's not a back room with dark lighting. It looks like an incredible library. Um, and you go into this really elaborate, beautiful room with the ceilings have to be 25 feet tall with uh, just very elaborate. And, and that's where you do your research, and it's, it's awesome. That's got to be amazing. Now, are you allowed to take pictures? Are you allowed to... So the way that I collect the documents is um, I had an app on my phone that would take a photograph, not without flash. Mm -hmm. It would take a photograph, and it would convert that photograph 
into a PDF document and also attempt to recognize the text. I say attempt because sometimes the text would be uh, blurry and then you get wingdings Hard for do, a result. Sure. Okay. So do you remember the first time you went in there and the first document you were looking for? So I didn't know what I was looking for at first, but I remember that first visit was in December of 2017, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to look for. Now, I'd read a couple of Border Patrol history books that had some scholarly sources, and that's that, that was my first target. That very first visit, I found out about a guy named Frank Berkshire. Frank Berkshire ended up being the father of the Border Patrol. The very first visit there, I found his proposals in 1918 to create a Border Patrol, and then I found the document where the Acting Secretary of the Department of Labor in November of 1918 approved the creation of the Border Patrol. So you have, a, you have an email that you send out to anybody that wants to receive it. It's called This Week in USBP History, and you have the week. And it just so happens that the one that you just sent out November 3rd, 1918, Frank Berkshire, that you've dubbed the father of the Border Patrol, submitted his final proposal for the creation of the Border Patrol. In this proposal, Berkshire was instructed to submit absolute minimums. He proposed a force of 264 Border Patrolmen for the mm -hmm. southern border, which would absorb all mounted watchmen, which is the predecessor to the Border Patrol. And this proposal would be approved by the acting secretary on November 12th of 1918. However, implementation didn't occur until 1924, several years after several meetings and, and funding was mm -hmm. resolved. So, I mean, the actual idea of the Border Patrol, as it's named, came back in 1918. Yeah. Even though we celebrate its actual uh, inception in, in 1924. So it didn't become a thing until 1924, but the idea was much older than that. And in the meetings after, uh, what had happened is the funding had fallen through. So the acting secretary said, yes, create the Border Patrol as per Berkshire's plan. Uh, funding fell through, and then they said, well, we better have meetings about this. So you had uh, the Customs Service in the meetings and the Coast Guard who had a slice of the Border Patrol and all these different organizations and agencies, about six of them having meetings, and they all concurred at the end of it in 1922, yes, let's have there be a Border Patrol and let's it, have it be part of the Immigration Service. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before I go any further, and uh, Mr. Gill has given me permission to give this email address out, but if you want to receive this uh, email that is this week in U.S. Border Patrol history that has uh, landmark dates and, and notes and things of worth that have, that have taken place in that week in, in our history, you can email uh, Mr. Gill at cliff at honorfirst.com. It's C-L-I-F-F at honorfirst.com, and he'll put you on that mailing list, and it's it's kind of neat to read. There's there's others in here that talk about uh, on November 1st, for example, 1930, a gunfight occurred in El Paso between three Border Patrol inspectors, as they used to be called, and a person known as Chato, and the document, document contains a cover memo and a sworn statement from one of the Border Patrol inspectors that uh, Mr. Chato was wounded and is suspected to have died in Mexico due to his wounds. So there's a lot of little things that, uh, that happened in our history that's that's available that he can uh, that he can provide you just just for interest and to get to know a little bit about our organization and things that have happened that, that got us to where we are today. So that is uh, that is this week in U.S. Border Patrol history. And that is Cliff at HonorFirst.com. Okay. In addition to being the historian for the Border Patrol, since you have retired, and we know that Cliff is retired because he's sporting the retired goatee and mustache that we all... It's a prerequisite. It is, I think so. And I notice you've got yours under control compared to some of the others. So I, it was, it, I got it under control about two months ago. My <laughs> wife sent me nonverbals that it, it 
probably wasn't the, the best look for me when it was uh, slightly unruly. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, we spend our entire careers having to maintain a, a strict grooming standard. Mm-hmm. We want to enjoy life a little bit whenever we retire. We've earned it, I think. That's right. And so, so are you. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in addition to that, you also run honorfirst.com. Mm-hmm. So tell everybody what that is. So, so a gentleman named Ray Harris. Ray Harris um, it was in the Marine Corps for 13 years, was a Border Patrol agent for 17 years, and then finished his federal career as an immigration special agent, retiring in 2003. In 1995, uh, this thing called the Internet was just coming around, and he saw that there wasn't any place out there for an applicant to find out information about the Border Patrol. So he started this website called Honor First, and he did it to help an applicant navigate the hiring process. So he's been running this for 25 years. Now, as a companion to that website, he started two other forums for people to share information. One is an applicant's forum, is heavily moderated, uh, and it allows applicants to ask questions of, of, of any of the knowledgeable visitors there for answers. And then we have an agent's forum where the agents can 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 talk. And and Ray and I uh, run and moderate both of those. Okay, and what are those called? So the Delphi message board, there will be a link under the communication tab in honorfirst.com. Gotcha. Okay. I wanted you to talk about those because, again, this is something that I think is so neat and so unique to the Border Patrol. Are all these things, these, uh, these, these assets, these benefits, these... Uh, that we can take advantage of that are in orbit around us mm-hmm. to help apply, to help exist in the agency, mm-hmm. uh, to help us adjust, to help our, our spouses and families adjust, and God forbid something bad happens to one of us. Even when you retire, you don't leave the Border Patrol. You're living proof of that. Yes. I am fully engaged with the Border Patrol. Every single day I receive emails and phone calls from active duty Border Patrol. Uh, look where I am right now. <laughs> this is this is absolutely awesome, and I and I love it. Uh, for me, it is a um, it is a way of giving back. So I can still share the history, even though I don't wear the uniform. So you talked about a couple of things that I thought were really neat. Uh, one of the ones that you mentioned was this this elusive document called General Order sixty one. Tell me, t- tell everybody that story that you were telling me earlier about what what is that, and and how did you find it? So as I was um, researching Border Patrol history, kept reading references to a document that I knew was just incredibly important in the development of the Border Patrol. I, I, I thought that, hey, I think this created um, the chief of the Border Patrol. The position didn't exist in those early years, but I couldn't figure out when it did. And it in, in other documents that we use today, such as the birth of the the 213, that's our primary document when we're processing the people we, we arrest and, and all these other things. So um, I had found about five or six references, files where this could be so that I had my targets and I ordered all the boxes and I never found it. And it was just an incredible loss. So one day I was in the uh, National Archives. I had given up on finding General Order 61 and I was going through a box, and as was my my MO, I was going through every single paper and every single file in every box, and I came across General Order 61. So I'm in this library-type setting. I'm getting all emotional because I'm. It, it was such a, an accomplishment for me. I found it. I had it in my hand. It was 
you know, I wanted to say, hey, everybody, here it is. And as I looked at the document, it created the position of senior patrol inspector, which, of course, became senior patrol agent. It created, it renamed an old position that was called patrol inspector in charge to chief patrol inspector. So that's what what you are right now, chief patrol agent. That's the birth of that position uh, in name. Uh, and it created a numbering system for the the sub-districts we call sectors and which bled down into the numbering system for the stations uh, and uh, reporting documents that existed when we were new in the Border Patrol and it was just an incredible find. So for those of you that don't know, the 213 is the form that we process our folks on. Now it's, it's electronic today. Back when you and I started, it was a carbon copy triplicate that you filled out by hand. Who knows what it was even before that. But you're talking about the birth or the establishment of that form that has been an integral part mm -hmm. of Border Patrol's history. You're talking about the inception or the creation of the senior patrol agent position, which for, for years and years and years was one of those unofficial leader positions at the stations, the, the, the ones that were the most seasoned agents and mm -hmm. inspectors out in the field. You're talking about the creation of the sector chiefs. Mm -hmm. This one document, this General right. Order 61, did all that. How did you even find out that it existed? So as I was reading documents, it would refer to General Order 61 and would give a piece of information of what was in it. And I kept writing it down and I was like, oh my God, I need to find this. And there was a, one time at the National Archives, there was an author, a historian uh, that, that I was, of which I was familiar with that specializes in, in, in writing about early immigration service history. And she happened to be in there and I went to talk to her have you found this document? We had an hour-long talk about it, and she hadn't found it either, and I ended up finding it. So you knew it was out there. You poured over hundreds of thousands of pages, oh, right. mm -hmm. and you came upon it by chance because that's of this right. research method that you've been doing, You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the take advantage and look through everything. I don't know if you can put it into words, but what was that feeling like when you looked down? When did you realize that you had it? So, uh, right off the bat, as soon as I saw it, and my emotional response, because I, uh, I'll get emotional on these things, my eyes watered <laughs> up, I think my chin quivered a little bit, it was, it was the find, yeah. it was a key piece of information, uh, of, unfortunately not many people know about it, even though that was several years ago and I put it out there, but I know about it and I know how special it is. And of course I bet you know where it is now. So what I've done is, uh, while I was still in the Border Patrol, I put it on the SharePoint site, so any agent or any Border Patrol or CBP employee who wants to access it can do it through SharePoint. And then I also have an electronic copy that I put on Honor First. So on Honor First, I've been able to duplicate um, uh, the, the history page that I had had within the Border Patrol, and I've since expanded on that. And so all of those documents are there for the public to see if they wish. And of course, one of the more notable things that this document did that you kind of alluded to was the numbering system. And I bring that up because there's been a, a rivalry, if you That's will, right. among a couple of different stations as to what was the very first Border Patrol station. El Paso has station one, mm -hmm. and their claim, of course, is that that is the first station of the Border Patrol. That's right. True or false? It's false. It's false. It's false. Okay, so talk us through that. So. Uh, before there was a border patrol, the Bureau of Immigration, the general uh, office or the central office, that's their headquarters, uh, oversaw the 
uh, Immigration Service. The Immigration Service was kind of a decentralized organization of districts. So for us old timers, we remember the INS regions. Mm -hmm. Well, those early immigration districts became the INS regions. Now INS, when, when it was disbanded, there were only three regions. In 1924, there were 35 districts. Oh. Now those 35 districts, there were 11 of them that were along the border. So the northern border, the southern border, and the coastal border. And each of those districts may have several sub-districts in there. The sub-district would later be called um, sectors in the 1940s. Well, 11 districts had 32 sub-districts. That means the Border Patrol started with 32 sectors. That means that El Paso and Detroit were two of those original 36. Now, you had talked specifically about Station 1. Well, in General Order 61, which came out in 1926, part of that order said that the every district uh, had a number, and then the sub-districts would also be numbered, always starting with one. So if you had a district with multiple districts, every one of these districts would have a sub-district number one. Okay. That numbering convention also went to the station. So let's talk about the old El Paso district. The old El Paso district was district number 25. It had three sub-districts. Sub-district one, we call Tucson sector today. Sub-district two, we call El Paso. And sub-district three, Big Ben. Now at that time, the stations were also co-located with their sector headquarters or their sub-district headquarters. So Station 1, Sub-District 2, District 25 was a co-location of the, of the El Paso uh, sub-district headquarters and station. And so kind of to, to contrast that with what we know today, mm -hmm. so for those that don't know, a sector is a geographic region that the Border Patrol uses to divide up the United States. Yes. We today have 20 sectors. Mm -hmm. And so within those sectors, we have stations that mm -hmm. have smaller pieces of that geographic domain. If you can think of a large city that has precincts, sectors has stations. Okay. And so what you're talking about is the El Paso sector and the number one station in El Paso sector in, at the time. That's why it's called station number one. That's right. So Detroit also had a station one? That's right. And so did the San Antonio sub the San Antonio district had three sub districts we call Del Rio, Laredo, and RGV today. Reason why I wouldn't start mentioning those is no sector has upheld this tradition better than Laredo sector. What is the other name they call their stations? Putting you on the spot a little bit here. The other name they call their stations? What would they call Laredo North? Base Oh, Old Base Seven and Yeah, I got you. That is from that naming convention. It okay. is a carryover. So base two, Laredo North, base seven is is, is Laredo South, mm -hmm. and then all of the other stations. The training today is it. That's they, right. They still call it Old Base Seven. I remember that. Yeah. And that's where that numbering originates. Wow. Okay. So is there any way to know what the quote first Border Patrol station actually was? So there wasn't one. The lights turned on at the same time nationwide. Okay. So remember that what the funding law says. It says that the Bureau of Immigration would receive a million dollars, a hundred thousand dollars of which would be available right now. When you and I were talking, you said you feel your expertise goes up through the 40s, from That's basically right. the 1900s up uh, until the, the 40s. And, and this little bit that we've talked about right now, you actually can start to see, envision 
the the metamorphosis, the transformation of the agency that goes back to, you know, even before INS, mm-hmm. you know, when you had the mounted watchman, mm-hmm. you know, as the Department of Interior, mm-hmm. and and how it you know, eventually came under INS and what the what the geographic regions and district look like, and then mm-hmm. you know along comes the United States Border Patrol in 1924, and and where did that fit in mm-hmm. under INS, and then. 9-11 ultimately happens, and we leave INS, it's now defunct, and it becomes CBP, and we join with Customs. And it's just a neat thing to start to see, and I, you know, there's not that much information out there short of in the National Archives that they can actually track and, and know what that really was like and, and what took place over mm-hmm. those, those decades in time. You've kind of got a glimpse into that that most folks will never get because you've taken the time to actually research and pour through all of these documents and 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 frame it up mm-hmm. and you have you've made that available on yes, uh, on the honorfirst.com honor mm-hmm. so if anybody wants to educate themselves on the history of the border patrol and what our legacy is great resource to uh, yeah. to go to and and Mr. Gill obviously is the very first historian for the United States Border Patrol a great resource in his in his own right do you continue this work now so I, uh, I, I'm not going to the National Archives anymore. Now, I have spoken to and, and regularly speak to the Border Patrol Museum. Of course, I'm wearing a Border Patrol Museum that. shirt. David Hamm sent this out to me Great specifically for this, for this interview. Mm-hmm. So big thanks to him. I, I've let them know that in those cases where they want me to research, uh, I would certainly go out there and do that for them. What I find myself doing more than not, and I ran into an agent here who has an uncle and a father that were Border Patrol agents, uh, I will do research on family members. I have a lot of records that I can pour through, and I can talk about their classes, and I have a lot of the, the photographs, and I also have a, 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 an access to Ancestry.com uh, that I can do research for that. So that's what I do a lot of times uh, as far as the research, but more than not, I'm answering questions. Hey, Cliff, can you tell us about this? And so this is something, obviously, you have a passion for, and it, mm-hmm. it, it's a great resource, and and there's one particular piece of our history that I want to I hit you up about. Okay. I want to talk about our motto, our guiding principle, which okay. is honor first. Mm-hmm. When did that come into being? When did you first start to see that? And how has its use throughout our history kind of changed? Um, so there were several questions in there. Uh, that was one of the things I wanted to find out. Where did this come from? Now, you will look at older resources older documents from, say, the 1930s, and they will say that it spontaneously happened. And I, th- whenever I read something like that, I'm thinking, that sounds more like folklore. It, it, that, it doesn't work that way. So I started digging, and the earliest reference that I can find for Honor First was in the 1927 Commissioner General's report to the Secretary of Labor. Now, that 1927 report covers from, again, uh, July 1926 to June 1927. So I think it's fair to say that Honor First <clears throat> came into being in 1926. Now I found other documents from the El Paso district where they're using Honor First in the late 20s. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that it originated in the El Paso district, probably specifically the El Paso sub-district. Uh, and, and we have documents that, that support that. And and how was it referred to? How how was it? Uh, it it was referred to as its watchword. Now, Ronnie Handbeck had a a great story about honor first, and this is we're talking about integrity. And he says a story in this video about how 
uh, during the prohibition years, a Border Patrol inspector had been drinking in violation of law, and two other inspectors heard about it, and they grabbed him, and they marched him to the chief patrol inspector and made him resign. And in a 1930s document that was given in, to the new hires in the El Paso subdistrict, they were told that honor first is the Border Patrol watchword, and if you can't live up to it, resign now. Resign now was in all caps with exclamation points. So back at the in, in the late 20s, it was uh, adopted it was, and used prolifically, really. Yeah, so and, it was around, absolutely. And since that time, it has become a guiding principle that we teach here at the academy that, that each and every one of us are expected to live by. Mm-hmm. And it all originated back in... As far, as far as you can tell, 1926. 1926 out of El Paso. So El Paso can claim that. They can. Maybe not Station 1, but they can not claim. Not Station 1. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, so Honor First is a part of your life as well. That's right. While we're on the topic, what does Honor First mean to you? So Honor First to me is, if you were to look up the word integrity in the dictionary, and you look up the synonyms for integrity, you're going to find words such as ethical behavior and morals and stuff such as that. That, all of those added together to me is is honor first. And to take it a, a bit further, when I think of honor first, and you think of that person or that organization that uh, conducts themselves with integrity, with honor, what they do is they constrain their behaviors by the rules and regulations, policy and laws that surround them. Now they may, in the course of their 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 duties, bump against them, but they correct. They self-correct. But if you think about those organizations, individuals who operate a little bit questionably, what they'll do is they will find those boundaries and they'll push them. And that to me is contrary to honor for so the interesting concept about this is when we talk about honor first and integrity that we don't always get to define the boundaries. It is a higher authority than us. So it's the law and the regulations and the policy and the rules. We don't always get to do that. So we have to do, and that is integrity. That is honor first. And that is the challenge when we say, I don't think that's right, but we don't get to define right. And such is life of a public servant. That's it. And it also deals with our behavior mm-hmm. and the actions on and off duty. That's right. And some of those actions go above and beyond mm-hmm. the call of duty. Mm-hmm. And we have, through our history, literally hundreds of thousands of instances where members of the United States Border Patrol have gone above and beyond the call of duty in acts of heroism mm-hmm. and valor not all too often getting rewarded or recognized Mm -hmm. for those actions. You saw a gap there. So, again, pursuing my passion for employee morale and organizational pride, I found myself in a position where I can make a difference. And the difference that I did is I saw that we had, we didn't have enough in a a manner of formal recognition for our folks. We had non-traditional awards, which is basically anything we can buy for a hundred bucks, and then we had commissioners and secretaries awards. And then we had awards where we would go outside of our organization and ask these people to recognize our folks, whether that's the Department of Justice or wherever. So I said, we can do better. Now, I was familiar with a medals program that had been introduced, and I wish I could remember the gentleman's name, 
uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and he had come across, he had worked with the Institute of the U.S. Army Institute of Heraldry to create about 20 or 25 different medals. Um, for the Border Patrol. For the Border Patrol and the Department of Justice and the Immigration and Naturalization Service. What I think is, is that the Border Patrol wanted him. They said, well, there's no way that the INS and Department of Justice is going to go for this unless we add them in. So I think mm-hmm. they added him in. I don't know that for sure. And you bring that up for those that don't know, because before the Department of Homeland Security existed, before CBP existed, we were under the Department of Justice, under the Immigration and Naturalization Service, That's which right. is why you bring those those two entities That's right. So I found that. Now, a couple of the metal sets that were there <coughs> continued on. So we had the Newton ASRAC Award that had a, a metal set. We had uh, what was called the Chief's Commendation Medal that was only awarded one time and discontinued. We had the Purple Cross, which was our wound award. And then we had the Border Patrol 75th Anniversary Medal that was awarded in 1998 and, and, and authorized to wear until 2008. So I came in here and I looked at that and I said, we can do better. So what I said is, where can I fit these awards? So what I did is I uh, was able to propose, and, and, and I say I, look, I spoke to hundreds and hundreds of conversations with hundreds of people uh, getting their, their take on these awards. And by the time I had an IOP, a plan, an internal operating procedure, the awards policy, it was my version 26 that got submitted. Um, I wasn't told to do it. It surprised everybody. I just introduced it into correspondence. Well, it, it took off. But the thing is, is these awards were going to be, we're going to displace non-traditional awards and go under the, the commissioners and secretaries awards. One thing worth noting about the commissioners and secretaries awards is they only rec- they only recognize about 10% of our nominations. That means 90% don't get recognized. So the plan was we recognize our folks with an honorary award and then also put them in for those. And if they don't get it, well, that's fine. We, the Border Patrol, have taken care of our own with one of our awards. And if they get one, that's fantastic. They get something else. And so for to kind of distill all this down, for decades, the U.S. Border Patrol didn't really have an effective way of recognizing these acts of its men and women no. out there in the field. So you saw that gap. You continued the work of some other folks that had tried to do the same thing mm-hmm. over the years and finally got it across the finish line That's right. to what it is today. And so mm-hmm. today we have the Border Patrol Achievement Medal, mm-hmm. the Border Patrol Commendation Medal. Mm-hmm. We have the Newton Azraq mm-hmm. Award. We have the Purple Cross Award. Mm-hmm. And all of these things, when somebody is living on or first and they are placed in a position of extreme hardship or adversity and they persevere or they save somebody's life, mm-hmm. uh, an extreme act of valor, then they can get awarded these in recognition for those acts. That's right. You yourself have been the recipient of more than one of these awards. I have. So one of them is the Newton Azraq Award. And before we talk about your acts, I want you to tell everybody what is the Newton Azraq Award and why is it named that? So there were two Border Patrol inspectors, Theodore Newton and George Azraq, who on June 19, 1967, were overpowered at a checkpoint, um, and they were subsequently murdered. It was uh, a very graphic scene, and this shocked uh, the Border Patrol and shocked the Immigration and Naturalization Service. It it was not the first time that we lost two inspectors in the same incident. As a matter of fact, that was the fourth time we lost two at the same time, and since then, uh, we're, we're up to 
nine. So nine times in Border Patrol history, we've lost two or more due to the same incident. However, this was the first time uh, that they were murdered. So six years after, in 1973, the Immigration and Naturalization Service created a new award, and it was the highest award in the Immigration and Naturalization Service, and it was the new NASRAC Award. And today it's still our highest award for the United States Border Patrol. And this was, is it Oak Grove? Is that the uh, checkpoint that they were? So I think it was the city. I think it was a tactical checkpoint, you know, throw out a couple of cones and a stop sign. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, that changed the way we do checkpoints uh, as well. So so in our Border Patrol uh, handbook, it it says that the minimum staffing for a checkpoint is, uh, is three. Now, we may have, since I've retired, have new documents, so it may be a little bit rusty on that, but that is what we think. Furthermore, we think that it's because of their deaths, or I, I believe that George Azrak was a trainee. He hadn't attended the academy, so what happened, at, at what was common at that time, you get hired by the Border Patrol, you report to your station, they give you your badge and gun and uniform, and you start doing the work under the umbrella of a, of a journeyman agent and they said or at that time inspector um, and they said well, maybe that's not the right way maybe we need to hire them and send them to the academy first to, to equip them to operate in the field so we believe those two things and so these two brothers that uh, paid the ultimate uh, price made the ultimate sacrifice in service to their country and, and what uh, cliff didn't talk about they were actually kidnapped from the checkpoint mm-hmm. and they were taken to a, a shack yeah. and they were bound to a stove and executed with their own weapons yes and uh in honor of the sacrifice that these men made uh just a horrific incident the highest award that we give is named after them and persists today that's right and so you can imagine it drives a little bit more home for us to give an award that's named after two individuals in our history like that Mm -hmm. you were the recipient of that award what did you do to get? So, um, in in two thousand, um, we were in Laredo. Uh, my partner Eric Perez and I. Uh, he's still active today, I believe. Oh. Um, we were uh, working along the river. It was flooded, so we it was a very light day, and but we had a crosser. <laughs> so we have a guy crossing a river, and uh, we moved to intercept. Um, didn't want to chase anybody back into the danger of the river, so the idea was to get around him. So we get between him and the river so we could apprehend him but he saw us before we could do that he ran back into the river and uh, almost immediately he started screaming for help and I knew he was in trouble so I took off my gun belt and I gave it to to Eric and I jumped into the river in pants and boots and I started swimming to the guy and uh, it was uh, it was pretty hairy the the river's doing this number it's Mm -hmm. all murky and you know, the trees are going by as we're going down there, and he is uh, just in, the, the victim is in just pure, pure panic. He is, I know if I get close to him, he's going to grab me, and we're both going to die. So I said, well, let me stay back about 10 feet and uh, see what happens. I want him to tire out so then I can go to him, and he's he's exhausted, and it's not going to, you know, kill us both. Well, he didn't gradually get tired. He immediately stopped and disappeared under the water and I thought oh my god so I swim over to him where I thought he was because remember the water is murky and bouncing up 
and I th and I don't know what to do and I see a single bubble pop I'm like well maybe that's him so I swim about three feet under the water while reaching another three or four feet down and I grab him by the back of his collar and I pull him up but he's struggling so I can't change my grip to get him so he rests on my forearm which is pushing me underwater I start swimming and I can't get breath because I'm being held under the water. So I have an inner dialogue going on. The inner dialogue kind of goes like this. You're going to die. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm, thinking I'm going to die. And I'm like, you're not going to die. So that's the other side of me. So I had the two cliffs talking here. You're going to die. And you're not going to die. And I, so I peek up and I'm like, how far do I have to swim? And I think it's like 20 feet, which seemed like a mile. So I go back underwater and I'm swimming. And every time I poke my head up, by the way, he's going... Uh, in, in, in Spanish, he's saying, thank you, official. Thank you for saving me. Thank you. And I'm thinking, you're not saved yet. And I thought, I'm going to have to let him go. He's going to die. Uh, and I thought, I can't let him go. How can I live with myself when I'm so close to saving him? And then I come back up. All right, it's, it's closer now. And I finally get us to the riverbank, and the riverbank is vertical. So I grab roots, and I kick in to the bank, and I pull him over. And it's at that time that I hear Eric. And Eric is screaming because he hasn't heard or seen me this whole time. He thinks I'm gone. Oh, and it was just horrifying. Um, and I, I tell him I'm here. And um, we pull the guy and, and get him out of the water. And, and there's the fire ants. So we come right to a fire ant nest. So after of all of this, we're getting eaten up with fire <laughs> Of course. Ants. Yeah. So um, that was the action. That was in 2000. Uh, part of the strength of the, the recognition system, the honorary awards, is a, allows us to go back in the past. And in those cases where an employee was under-recognized or not recognized, we can look at it and give them. For that rescue, by the way, and, and I feel bad for the supervisors, they gave me the only thing they could. They printed up a certificate on their desktop printer, and, and they gave me a coffee mug that had a scratch on it. They didn't realize it. It was the best they could do. They gave it with great sincerity. But how many times in our history has that very thing happened? Because it's all we could do. And that was part of my motivation. Mm -hmm. Let me create a system that allows the Border Patrol to take care of its own, to look in the past for those guys who were unrecognized or underrecognized or recognized by somebody other than the Border Patrol. So before we get off of the actual incident itself, yeah. I want to go back and, and cover a few things I think that were either glossed over or omitted. I want everybody to think about what it would be like to swim in a river of current in a polyester uniform with work boots on. That in and of itself would be hard to stay afloat. Mm -hmm. But then go from arrest mode to rescue mode just like that. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you put your life on the line or a complete stranger, mm -hmm. somebody that you had intent on arresting at one point. Mm -hmm. Safe to say he was grateful that you were there that day. Oh, yeah. yeah. How many times a day, a day, not a week, mm -hmm. not a month, not a year, how many times a day does that happen throughout the Border Patrol where if the Border Patrol wasn't there, somebody would die? Countless. I mean, Countless. It, it. that is why we need the recognition for our men and women that are out there doing that job. You did a service. So along what we're saying, so we're talking about an intersection of history and an employee recognition. So the Border Patrol has an internal system called BPEDS, and this is the system where all of these can be electronically nominated and approved. No, no paper, but important in the historic 
this becomes the Border Patrol's greatest depository of the successes, achievements, and heroism of our workforce once they're nominated and put in there. Huge, huge benefit. See, and I, and I tell everybody on the outside of the Border Patrol that I talk to, my goal as a chief is I want them to see my brother and sisters through my eyes. I want them to see them the way that I do. I, there is not enough pride on the planet to describe how I feel every time I read one of those stories, every mm-hmm. time I see one of those acts that, uh, that, that our men and women do. And, and I believe that if, if people see that side of it, if they see what these men and women do each and every day, they're going to be supported. So along those lines, on the Honor First site, I have a section that's called Upholding Honor First. And what I say in that site, in the introduction page, is that an organization's values is codified in its awards program. And I explain about the Border Patrol Awards program in there. And I have several links. And the link is, one is for the new NASRAC, and I have a listing of all the new NASRAC recipients and their stories and what they did. And, and where I have available to me, I have pictures of the recipients and pictures of their award system. Then I have another page for the Border Patrol Commendation Medal. And I ask people, please send me your awards. And I will post them here to tell those good stories. And I have one for the Achievement Medal and the Purple Cross and for other awards. So if you got some sort of other recognition for your Border Patrol work, send it to me and let me post it. Now, I know throughout my career, I've always thought, well, nobody's really advocating for us in the public. We see the bad media bites, but nobody's putting the good stories out there. And this is one place where it's public that it is there, and I certainly need help building it out more. Sure. So you did that. You got the uh, the Newton Azrecht Award. Yeah. You also received the Commendation Award for Extraordinary Heroism. Yes. What was the circumstances behind that? So that was another water rescue. And if you remember River Drive Mall... There's a place in River Drive Mall where there's some pylons where there used to be a bridge Mm -hmm. many decades ago. Well, uh, there was another flood, I know, a surprise, (laughs) and we had a group of three that was crossing a river, and as was the case at the time, we would determine. That was nighttime. It was in January. By the way, it was the same year Mm -hmm. as the other rescue. The other rescue happened in July, and this one was in January, so it was colder. So we're trying to deter these three people that's coming across in an inner tube, and as we hit them with the spotlights... Uh, they panic, and two of the three people fall off the tube and are immediately in trouble. And the third person that's holding on to the tube, he's also in trouble because he's holding on to the tube like this, and the tube's going vertical, and he's holding his face under the water. So I'm watching this, and at the time we had uh, these rescue discs, which were very ineffective. I, I couldn't throw more than, say, 30 feet, and these people were somewhere around halfway across the river, so they were pretty far out there. Well... The lady, there were two males and a, and a female, she starts floating face down. And I tell my partner, I, I can't stand here and, and watch this without doing something. And, and I have an inner dialogue going on. And my inner dialogue is, can I do this without becoming a victim? Can I do this without one of my brothers having to save me, risking putting themselves at risk to save me? And I thought, yes. So I take off my gun belt, still have my pants and boots on, give it to my partner, hold this, jump into the water, and then the inner dialogue happens. You're going to die. <laughs> so, so they started having this. No, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. I'm going to be fine. So I'm swimming in these boots and pants. And the, the first victim is that guy. And he's 
screaming at me in Spanish, help me, help me, help me. And I'm thinking, well, you're staying above water pretty well. Let me swim by you. And I get to the lady because I know the clock is ticking for brain damage to set in. So I, I turn her over. And again, it's that water. We're going down mm-hmm. current. And I'm thinking, how can I feel for a pulse? So I'm going to try to feel for a pulse in this current and it's cold. And I, I'm thinking, I'm not going to feel anything, but this is what you do. Um, and as I go to feel for a pulse, she's unconscious, but she throws up a bunch of water and she starts breathing. If you're breathing, you have a pulse. She stays unconscious. She's fairly buoyant, so I don't have to lift her. And I'm like, all's well. So I start swimming back. Um, and I look over to the guy I just passed, and he's becoming lethargic. And I remember, I thought, my perception is they were about halfway in the middle of the river. So this is a, this is a swim. Yeah. Um, and and I, so I look at where he is to the bank, and I'm thinking, there's no way I have time to get her to shore and come back for him. He's going to go under before I, before I can do this. So I thought, oh, what do I do? So I, so how deep is the water? So I go underwater and extending to my tiptoes and holding onto that lady, I touch bottom and I think, all right, I can do this, which I can't believe I would think such a thing. So I swim over to the guy and I tell him, give me your hand. So he gives me his hand. I'm holding onto her. I got him. I go underwater and I run under, I run under bottom. And of course the bottom's moving. So I'm kind of mm-hmm. stumbling on the bottom come up for air, and I keep doing that until I get them both to shore. And that's how that rescue happened. So what saved me is she's unconscious, and he didn't panic and grab me and, and, and kill all of us. So very fortunate. Um, to, to wrap up the story, I get them both to shore, and the third guy's in trouble, and I'm full of so much adrenaline, I'm not thinking about rescuing him, I'm thinking about apprehending him. So I go back in the water, about waist deep and tell him to come here, give him that officer presence thing. Uh, and he comes to me, and, and, and we, so we got all three. So, ladies and gentlemen, I wanted Cliff to tell that story because I want everybody to hear that when a Border Patrol agent says it's a perilous journey, when they say it is a dangerous environment, it's not some buzzword. It's not some talking point. It's something that they live each and every day. These are the type of experiences that inform a statement like that. When we say that for an illegal migrant that the journey is perilous from the moment they step off of their front porch at their house and they are in criminal hands and they are making a perilous journey through another country and they get to the border and they're the hands of the smugglers. They cross a river that Mm -hmm. is deadly. Every year we lose people Mm -hmm. that drown. If they make it across, they're in a desert and conditions that are not meant for for humans to survive. They continue in the hands of criminals and smugglers, stash houses, tractor traders, human trafficking. These are the types of experiences that inform a statement like that. It's not propaganda. It's not political. It's what we see and live each and every day. Mm -hmm. What you just heard is an all too common story from the men and women that wear this green uniform. Cliff is lucky enough to have survived it. Yes, sir. And we're glad you did. Yeah. But how many times through history has that not been the case? And how many times through history have men and women in green been there in important instances to save lives, to make a difference? And in fact, while we're on that topic, I'm going to put you on the spot and let's talk about some of the more notable instances in history that maybe folks didn't know Border Patrol was present. 
so this is this is outside of my expertise, but they have some pretty cool things. So one of the earliest documents I found where Border Patrol is touching early history is from the uh, Tucson subdistrict, so subdistrict one of District 25, uh, where they are having a meeting in Tucson, but Charles Lindbergh is going to come there, and they're getting security set up to kind of help Charles Lindbergh, Medal of Honor recipient, uh, you know, the pilot of the Spirit of St. Louis, mm-hmm. he's coming there. So that was that was one that I thought was really cool. That was one of the earliest. And then we've heard the others, such as uh, um, the, uh, oh, I'm going to forget his name right now. He put me on the spot. But he Gil, Gilman, Gil, he was the chief of the Border Patrol Academy. And he and an FBI agent saved the day in a hijacking in the early 60s. Uh, we were there. And, of, of course, uh, just had another anniversary of, of the civil rights movement where we assisted the United States Marshals uh, in, in, in a couple of different places and of course security uh, throughout uh, the Olympics, helping in the Olympics, we've done that. Well, let's go back to the, the, the civil rights movement for a second. That yes. We actually helped provide security for, for some folks that were attending the school as the schools were being desegregated. That's right. Most people don't know that Border Patrol agents were there mm-hmm. providing security for those mm-hmm. young men and women as That's they were going to the school that mm-hmm. they absolutely were not welcome to. Yeah, and, and about 300 Border Patrol inspectors were were mobilized for that. Uh, I, I found that out by Joe Bonco, by the way. He's been researching it for his next book. So about 300 of them. Now, when we look at the photographs, we'll see that old-style DOJ Border Patrol badge. And we think, oh, that's a Border Patrol inspector. But you know what? The marshal's badges were identical at the time, so it's <laughs> almost impossible to figure out, all right, which is that Border Patrol or marshal's? But there were 300 Border Patrol inspectors there. That's mm-hmm. a significant uh chunk of manpower and then of course the uh, the la riots yes that's actually one of the things that led to the inception of uh, bortac the border mm-hmm. tactical unit yeah uh, numerous events throughout history you know the uh, salt lake city winter olympics mm-hmm. the, katrina natural disasters mm-hmm. we go to the list goes list goes on and on and on that uh, the border patrol has been there for that i think a lot of folks don't know even overseas mm-hmm. in uh Afghanistan and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Mm-hmm. You had Border Patrol deploying over there, embedded with the military, providing subject matter expertise on border security operations. Mm-hmm. The list goes on and on and on. If you want to hear and read about some of these things that uh, that the Border Patrol has been involved in throughout the years, highly recommend you check out this uh, this honorfirst.com and talk to Mr. Cliff Gill. We've since continued the the idea of having a Border Patrol historian, so mm-hmm. you've passed the baton on to an active duty agent. That's right. And, so. that, and that continues. And I think that's an important thing for us to, to keep going no matter what, because this is absolutely, uh, as we like to say here at the Academy, preserving our legacy. This mm-hmm. is something that we don't want to lose because it's, right. it's, it's a legacy that we are all part of. And I believe with complete certainty that there are incredible gems of information of which we've forgotten and, and just waiting to be found. I think you're right. So you've retired. Mm-hmm. been almost two years. Your no, name? no, 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 no. It's it, it was December 2020. December 2020. So 11 months. So almost a year. Yeah. Okay. So what's retired life like? Is it is it as good so, as they say it is? So I'm having the worst retirement ever because I got a, almost got a, another job immediately after retiring as, as a contract employee. And it, it's a great company and I do it. But what I really love is still the interaction with the Border Patrol through Honor First and the, um, and the associated forums and the daily phone calls and emails that I receive. Well, see, and, and, and here's another example of 
we stay in orbit around this green family. Mm-hmm. And those of us that are still on active service, we're very thankful that you're here, thankful that you that you do these things for us. And you know, I, we were talking about this in my office before, before we came down here. You know, so many folks that, uh, that we grew up with or we grew up under, you know, mm-hmm. they, they were our mentors, people mm-hmm. we looked up to, our friends, our brothers and sisters that we worked side by side with. And, and this idea that, that they or we retire right off into the sunset and never to be seen or heard from again, mm-hmm. what a tragedy that would be. And yeah. I, I think that's one of the things that makes us unique as an agency, as, as a family, is we tend to stay in touch. We tend, yeah. to, tend to, to stay in contact with those folks because they're more than just a coworker to us. Has that been what you've uh, found to be true? So, so this career gives us a shared experience. So there may be, and there are hundreds and hundreds of, of Border Patrol agents or Border Patrol employees of which I've never met, but we have a shared experience and that's what really brings us together. So even the, the newest class in this academy, fast forward 10 or 20 years from now, and I'm going to have a shared experience. We are going to have a shared experience, and, and that's what's so special. So we say that the uh, the academy is the home of the Border Patrol because, as you said, we all start here. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter the geographic location of the academy. We all begin and branch off from here to be whatever we're going to be in this in this organization. Mm-hmm. So in that way, that's that common shared experience that you're talking about. That, that is it. Mm-hmm. one of the things that makes us family. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, tonight you're going to be giving a fireside chat that's to true. Whoever wants to at the academy, we have. Yeah. Uh, it's always open to all the uh, the academy classes while they're here, and all the all the staff that want to attend. and And you're going to talk a little bit about the history of the border patrol. That's right. So I'm going to give a presentation, a presentation that began in uh, in May of, of 2018 that I had used to uh, brief the the headquarters staff on these new findings that I discovered at the National Archives, and and then I. T- evolved that to teach uh, the supervisors in Harper's Ferry and it's on version 14 because it every time something new gets discovered it corrects something old or adds to something we already have so real quick before we uh, we start to close out here give me one piece of information about the Border Patrol that you think most people don't know that uh, that would be interesting so I wasn't ready for that one. So, uh, <laughs> so I think that um, I, I gear this towards the workforce. I always, when I'm doing the history, I'm not thinking about the public. I'm thinking about the workforce. And I think that for the average agent, the most interesting, one of the most interesting historic finds would be those shoulder ornaments that you're wearing. Okay. So the shoulder ornaments didn't denote a supervisory level. It was part of the uniform. Everybody had them in the beginning. And it wasn't really until the 40s that they became to be part of, 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 of to, to denote supervisory levels. That was part of the uniform. So every time I've heard the proposal, we need to get rid of these, I'm like, that is tradition. <laughs> you cannot do that. So, so that's one. Well, I know everybody complains about them because they're a pain to put on, but what he's talking about, ladies and gentlemen, is, is this little uh, shoulder ornament that if you are a, a, a supervisor or above, you wear these on your uniforms. And I guess at one point, everybody did. That's and right. about the 40s, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. it's just supervisors and above. That's I right. didn't know that. Yep. Very interesting. So I put you on the spot, and you came through. Awesome. <laughs> so, Cliff, you have you have all of the men and women listening here right now that uh, mm-hmm. are your brothers and sisters. Anything you want to share with them? 
So, so for my Border Patrol brothers and sisters, you have my email address, uh, cliff at honorfirst.com. Uh, I am always available to reach out. And if you are a recipient of any Border Patrol award, please send it to me so I can post it. All you need to do is send a picture that's that that's legible, uh, you know, say if it's a certificate or a memo, and I will post that and you can be part of Upholding Honor First. Cliff Gill, thanks for being here, brother. Thank you so much, sir. Hope you enjoy the rest of your visit. And ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. We'll talk again soon. Honor First.